You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You're now tuned into the Pod Awful channel. Pod Awful. Bi-quarterly women's social club. Dazed and convicted. Pool party radio. Show King. The Devil's Advocate. The Projection Booth. Awful Flips. Pod Awful. Tierra mexicana, donde jamás se pone el sol, brilla en la noche americana la luna lejana del cielo español. Para la noche está la luna, para el mariachi está el canto, y las guitarras una a una siguiendo la tuna con el rondador. Support for the Projection Booth podcast comes from Stitcher Smart Radio. Now podcast listeners can access the latest episodes of the Projection Booth and thousands of other podcasts on the go without downloading or syncing. Stitcher instantly delivers episodes of your favorite shows to your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio can be found in the iPhone and Android app stores or on the web at stitcher.com slash booth. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me, of course, is Mr. Rob St. Mary. Fun fact, French fries, they're not French. They're Belgian. Whoa. And joining us this week is author Marceline Block. Hello. Hello. Thanks for joining us. This week we are talking about Toto Le Hero, the 1991 film from director Jaco van Dormial. The film tells the tale of Thomas van Heisenbroek, a.k.a. Chicken Soup, a man who is convinced that his life was stolen from him when he was switched at birth with his neighbor, Alfred Kant. 
we see Thomas and Alfred as old men in their middle age and as children, with these timelines being laid out parallel to one another rather than moving in a linear fashion. Marceline, as our guest, I want to start with you. What was your first experience with Toto Lehiro? I actually um, saw the film in the theaters uh, with my mother uh, when we were in New York, and um, it just left such an incredibly profound impression on me. Uh, as a child, I acted myself, so I, I was a I was a performer as a child in film, commercials, radio commercials, television, small parts. I joined the Screen Actors Guild of at a, at a young age by. Before my tenth, before I was ten years old, my mother's from France, and uh, my father, who's American, is just a huge movie buff. And so I always grew up around great cinema, and just with a love of cinema for performing and for viewing it. So I always grew up watching really wonderful films, French, primarily French, uh, French films, as I grew up in a French-speaking household. And I saw this film at a young age with with my mother, and it's just stayed with me for. Really, since then, I mean, it really is one of the most profound films, uh, or it really left such a strong impact on me when I was a child. I, or really not a child, but sort of about to enter adolescence, sort of on the cusp of adolescence. And there are a few films that just really stand out from my childhood or, or sort of early formative years. And Total Hero is absolutely one of them. I also remember seeing Tavernier's um, La Vie et Rien d'Autre, also um, particular scenes just staying with me. I, I, I would rewatch these films as an adult um, in college, uh, revisiting them when I was working on, on the book in Belgian cinema that I just, that I co-edited, that just, that was, just was published. And it just left a really lasting, profound impact on me ever since then. I mean, I, I've visited Belgium. My mother's from France. My family's from France. And I did also visit Belgium and many of the places that we feature in the book, such as Bruges and Brussels, of course. And um, I, I would say probably Toto de Ero was really my first engagement with Belgian cinema. It really was the first first Belgian film I saw. And it's sort of, I mean, it's an iconic film. It's just, It's just so powerful. And it's really just stayed with me since since then. I first saw it when you sent it to me to take a look at, and I felt very depressed after I saw this. And not depressed because of the film. I was depressed because I had never heard of this director before. I had never heard of any of his films. And I have to say that in a lot of ways, I know more about French film than I know about Belgian film. I mean, when I, when I, think, about, right. when I think about film from Belgium, it's uh, basically the totality of my experience, we'll talk about this later, is Man Bites Dog and A Town Called Panic. But I, I don't know what it is. I don't know if in America we don't we don't get these or they get lumped in with French film. Oh, that's all French film or whatever. But I do think that there's a very different tone to it. And another thing that I really appreciated uh, between both Total the Hero and Mr. Nobody, which we'll also talk about as well, <laughs> is that these films, you're looking at a master craftsman. You're looking at a guy <laughs> who knows how to make a film and and do it really well. And it's just um, it's just kind of sad that more people haven't seen us. So hopefully we can uh, introduce some folks to this, Mike. I happened to catch Total Hero. Gosh, it was probably like ninety-five or ninety-six. Uh, Rob, you know that growing up in Detroit, we get access to CBC, and they would do a show. I think it was on Friday nights. Uh, CBC being Canadian broadcast uh, television. And they would do full movies, no commercials, no editing. So it was really a pleasure to be able to 
check stuff out that way. And I just happened upon a screening, a television broadcast of Toto La Hero. And I don't normally talk this way on the podcast because, you know, what, what's that line from uh, Fight Club? Like people that have this much honesty, you know, make me go a big rubbery one or whatever. Toto La Hero also made me very depressed, but for different reasons. I mm-hmm. cried my freaking eyes out watching mm-hmm. this film. <laughs> exactly. I was actually going to, to mention that I just can't watch this film without crying, and I rewatched it in anticipation of our talk. And I mean, I've seen it over the years, and it just always makes me cry. It always brings me to tears. I mean, that's that's just what I was... I mean, absolutely. I, I could not agree more. And the thing I that- even thought I was going to get away this last time without crying, and I made it almost all the way through, and then one scene happened, and I busted out again. <laughs> you know, that sounds like me when I watch uh, Umbrellas of Cherbourg. So oh, I, I understand. I oh, like a baby when I watch that film. <laughs> Which we'll have to do on the podcast one day. Oh, um, yeah, just so we can oh, be completely depressed. Oh, that would be wonderful. <laughs> but, but the thing, like I said, that, that really made me sad about this was after I watched it, I went out and I looked online, and I don't know if this is still the case, but it said that the film had been purchased for U.S. distribution, and Paramount hasn't put it out. And it's been like 20 years, like in any format. There's like no way to see it in the States. And that really, you know, made me sad. And then when I saw Mr. Nobody, that's received such little attention. And I'm hoping that because Jared Leto's in that and now that he's won this, you know, Academy yeah. Award, that this will help push that film out and maybe these other ones along with it. So that that's what I'm hoping. In terms of Toto de Ero, it's actually we chose a still from uh, an image from Toto de Ero for the cover of our book on Belgian cinema. Um, it is of the of the young boy uh, from Toto de Ero. It's actually from the director's own uh, personal archive. He he, he um, gave us the permission, gave us this photograph to use, and it's interesting because when I've shown this book to or when friends of mine or colleagues who are French or or from France, or the, it's very recognizable to them. I mean, it's kind of this immediate moment of recognition that uh, they immediately say, oh, that's Toto. They know it right away. So it's so iconic over there, you know, on that, that side of the Atlantic. It is so so incredibly iconic, and people immediately recognize it. So I want to talk a little bit more about the plot of the film, because mm-hmm. just because this is a very difficult one to see as an American, which is kind of weird. It was fairly easy to get when it was out on VHS, and it was in the foreign film section of mm-hmm. most blockbusters out there and I'm, I'm sure it was probably in some other uh, independent or more independent uh, stores as well and I'm sure Rob you you will know that this is probably at uh, Thomas Video so hopefully folks here in Detroit can go check it out but yeah as far as a DVD release not too easy to get I had to order mine through like Amazon.uk or whatever so the film really does tell these parallel stories we've got toto as a young boy toto really even as a, a baby uh, or kind of narrating the history of his life and toto as a middle-aged man who is not a very happy camper and toto as an old man who is really not happy very very bitter and it's almost like we're getting the older toto narrating his entire life and really the narration voice changes from the old man 
to the to the young boy as he's kind of talking about the way that his his life came about and i love this opening where he talks about how the world works and it really reminds me it's that kind of just playful magical and of course magical realism really comes mm-hmm. up in this film quite a bit very much so and it really reminds me of kind of that light and frothy way that Amelie kind of plays out the playful nature of everything but there's just such a nice darker edge i won't say that this is that much of a dark film but there is this kind of cynicism and regret i think regret is probably the biggest word i think of when i think of toto absolutely i I completely agree with you and he says he feels that nothing has happened to him and his life i mean absolutely I, i i agree very very much with with your assessment um, regret and um, missed connections, missed opportunities, missing something due to uh, due and, and also chance, which can I mean temporality and chance and how you can just miss make a wrong turn and your life changes completely. Make something happens five minutes later and it just changes your life completely and very. It can either be a negative or it just this notion of time and, and regret. I absolutely and completely agree with you there. You know, it's funny that you bring up Amelie because I think that would probably be the closest connection that an American who hasn't seen yeah. this because it didn't receive wide distribution would know. And I would say not only in terms of that sort of like you were talking about magical realism and that sort of the, the storytelling, but one of the things that I also sort of picked up is this sort of Jean-Pierre Genet design idea that the the film takes place in reality, but it does have certain elements. And I mean, I was a big uh, Genet fan going back to like Delicatessen and things like that. Mm-hmm. And it just has a certain tone. Just has a cer- yeah, it has a certain tone, it has a certain look. And, um, and I would have to say that's probably the closest connection that I think that most Americans who have seen, they, they're more likely to see Jean Genet films um, than they would see, like I said, Van Darmiel because his stuff hasn't really received that kind of big distribution here in the States. To your point, Marceline, the whole idea of chance and everything Mm -hmm. really does play such a big factor in this. And even the loss of everything. And I mean, really, Toto, he loses his father. He loses his sister, or does he, kind of thing. Really, he just becomes alone as the world moves on. The only one that he really kind of keeps hold of is his brother. And really, we don't see – we see the brother in the early section. We see the brother in the middle section. We don't see him when he's an old man. So we're thinking you know, that his brother is gone as well. So really, when he is alone and he's kind of in this – I guess it would be like an old folks home kind of thing. That's it. He's just – he is alone with his thoughts and just kind of going back into the world. I mean he can't you know, smoke a cigarette. He can't do anything. He's had all of his privileges taken away from him. It's almost like he's in prison. And he, when he breaks out of the old folks' home, it is very much like a prison break kind of thing. And I love this whole idea of – you know the the title comes from him having like a secret agent name, and he plays into not only do we have the linear story going on, or nonlinear story going on, but we also have these fantasies that he will engage in, where his father comes back, his father is fine, or he is a spy, or there's interactions between some of his fantasy and the reality, and then really the middle section. I guess you could call it the middle age section of the film is very much a very fantastical 
in the way that he kind of meets his sister again, but it's definitely not his sister. But there's this whole idea of both he and Albert trying to create this woman in his sister's image. And I have to say, and I, I felt really dumb that I didn't pick up on the whole vertigo theme until probably like three times ago when I watched this. And finally the line about gentleman seems to know what he wants. That's right from vertigo and seeing that reflection in the mirror and seeing the way that he's, they're dressing her up to be exactly. this other character. Exactly. When he's buying her the dress, it's right. very, very reminiscent. And he knows exactly which dress that she should wear to remind him the most of uh, this uh, long lost uh, love um, object that he's trying to recreate. And interestingly, Vertigo itself actually has roots in Belgium, actually from uh, a story called Bruges la Mort. It was a 19th century story that was then rewritten, that really inspired um, Boileau and Narcissac d'Entre les Morts, which was a source text for Vertigo. So it has actually a Belgian connection too, which I thought would be interesting to kind of bring up. I guess it all goes full circle with, with Total Hero. <laughs> One thing in relation to the um, the relationship you were talking about between the brother and the sister, and I was thinking to myself, maybe this is part of the reason why it didn't get a lot of notice in the States, is the professional. I like Leon, the professional. And there's this whole thing in Leon, which is the international cut, not the American version, between um, Jean Renault and Natalie Portman. There's almost this sort of um, love relationship between like an 11-year-old and a 50-year-old man. And I was thinking to myself, watching this, there's this whole, I guess, incest relationship between them as kids and then also older as well where he's still interested in his sister and he's been sort of, I guess, kind of stunted relationship-wise because he's always trying to compare someone to that. And I thought to myself, I go, you know, underage sexuality in – Leon, although not consummated, and here being an incestuous relationship, maybe that was just a little too much for American distributors to go, yeah, we're willing to put this out or, or give it a push or something like that because they knew that they would maybe receive negative press or some sort of backlash because we just can't handle that in the story here, I guess, in America. Come on, Rob. <laughs> People love Star Wars. Yeah, but that isn't – you don't know that until the final like two minutes of the film, of, of the last one, Okay. So, but, but what I, you know, you get what I'm saying here because there's this whole thing where they're sort of in bed and you kind of get the feeling with, with the kids that this is their first experience, like understanding like what that might mean and their feelings and sort of, you know, how does your body work kind of stuff, you know, and, and things. And I don't know if she necessarily gives his love back, though I think that she does. And I think for Toto, he can kind of, almost explain it away a little bit because he doesn't think that she's really his sister. This whole idea of him thinking that his life was stolen from him, that he was switched at birth with Albert and this whole idea of, I, I love the scene where we see Albert is getting this car, this full size car that he can ride birthday. around in, wheel around in for his birthday. And Toto just gets this little 
tin car, you know, and he doesn't know any better and he's happy about it and everything, but to see the difference and everything and for us to keep in mind, oh, he thinks that his life has been stolen and that he could have gotten the bigger car and he could have been with this other family, though not everything is all it's cracked up to be with the Kant families to down the street, but he doesn't know that. He just makes them into, you know, this has got to be the best life ever. So, I guess I can kind of see it as he doesn't think that she's his sister, that she's this stranger down the street. But yeah, it was way too close to home as far as just like, oh, yeah, whether you're really related or not, you guys live in the same house and this is a little strange. And then we get to see this same kind of brother-sister relationship explored again in Mr. Nobody. So I definitely think there's a theme of incest running through these films. I'm okay with it being on film. Uh, I wasn't necessarily uncomfortable. To me, it just kind of adds an, another interesting aspect to uh, Toto and to Mr. Nobody. It does add an interesting psychological level. And another thing that I was thinking about in, in Toto as well, and I think we talked about this before, and I can't remember what film, what episode, but there's this scene where he goes and burns the garage down. And if you know about the psychology of pyromaniacs, that fire is a substitute for sex and sexual repression. So the idea of burning things and what burning represents, pyromaniacs and sort of sexuality are kind of connected. Fire, 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 fire. I think that also in Mr. Nobody, the, the relationship, it's clearly that they are not related. Anna, uh, the teenage Anna and the teenage Nemo, but uh, Anna's father, who is either... I don't know if he's married to, but Anna's father is the living with and is the partner of Nemo's mother. And he yells at Nemo and Anna and says, your brother and sister, what you're doing is disgusting. And before the split between um, Anna's father and, and Nemo's mother, he clearly calls them brother and sister, even though they are not biologically related, but they do live under the same, I mean, they are part of this family unit. And that, is consummated much more, much more so than than in Toto the Ero. In Toto, it's almost more of a fascination, the young boy's fascination uh, with his sister. And just picking up on, on the, the theme you mentioned about arson, that the sisters often engage in behaviors that are transgressive or just, for instance, when she's shoplifting in the supermarket and she blows up the toilet using the items that she shoplifted or she she's kind of engaged in behaviors that transgressive or bad behaviors that sort of fascinate the young boy. I mean, she uh, he sees her when she knocks over the statue in the church or she she's very, I mean, her behavior and she lies at one point when they stay home from summer camp and the young Alfred comes over and says, I want to speak to your mother. And she completely lies to him and says, Oh, my mother's upstairs. She's sick. She's in bed. She can't talk to you right now, but let me go, let me go ask if she's available and kind of just completely makes up this very believable lie. So, I mean, her behaviors are sort of the way, um, she sort of fascinates the, 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 the younger brothers. Really, Toto is really fascinated with her and, and he sees her engaging in these behaviors. So that, I think it's it's something to mention as well. You were talking about chance and the whole, if you were five minutes earlier or later or anything, that whole thing coming up with the the train station and the missed opportunity there. Again, we're going to see that so much when it comes to Mr. Nobody. And for me, 
Mr. Nobody is kind of, you know, we've talked about how Toto is not available to American audiences. And for me, I think Mr. Nobody is kind of the chance for Americans to get to know Jacques Van Dormial and his cinema. And Toto almost feels, I don't want to say it's a dry run because it is very much a very complete film, but you're going to see a lot of similarities between Mr. Nobody and Toto Le Hero. Like as I was watching it, I just kept hearing these echoes in my brain as I'm seeing Mr. Nobody roll out. Though it's strange that I was seeing this because Mr. Nobody, for lack of a better term, it's a science fiction film. You know, we set part of it in the future, but again, we have these parallel stories being played out. But in that one, it's interesting because not only are you getting parallel versions of Nemo Nobody in the future and being the only man alive who hasn't died a natural death, the whole idea of seeing all of the decisions in his life play out all at the same time, this whole idea that goes back to a short film that Jacob Van Domeriel did right before or a few years before Toto where it's the whole idea of does he go with his mother, does he go with his father, that splits off and creates these two parallel lives. And it's almost like every decision kind of gets played out, and we see all of the versions of this character's life playing out all at the same time as we're going forwards and backwards in time, which I can see that confusing the hell out of Americans but if you give it a few moments and you figure it out and you just kind of wait and let it play, for me, it was a really wonderful experience. Can you tell me how old you are? Oh, I'm 34. I was born on February 9th, 1975. Who are you? I'm Mr. Nobody, a man who doesn't exist. We don't know who Mr. Nobody is. Neither does he. Our patient's memories are confused. So, Nemo, have you made up your mind? Do you want to come with me or do you want to stay with your father? We cannot go back. That's why it's hard to choose. Nemo! You have to make the right choice. As long as you don't choose... Everything remains possible. I'm sorry, I, I don't understand. Did you stay with your father or go with your mother? Remember. Hello, Nemo. I want you. I want you too. For as much as Anna and Nemo have consented together in holy wedlock, for as much as Elise and Nemo, Jean and Nemo, have joined themselves to each other, everything that you say is contradictory. Of all those lives, which one, which one is the right one? Enough. 
actually, some have even called Mr. Nobody a remake almost of Toto and have said it's, I mean, it's the expanded version. It obviously has the science fiction elements and the trip to space and the, the space station or the, the trips to other planets, other worlds. But it's, I mean, some have, have gone so far as to call it, um, to, to call it a remake of, of Toto. I mean, I, I don't know if, if either of you agree with that or disagree, but that some, some have gone so far as to say that. So. I don't necessarily see it as a remake. What I see it as is someone taking similar ideas and similar structure and then expanding upon it. So that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a remake. It's much like when we did The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, one could say, okay, well, Discreet Charm is a remake of The Exterminating Angel because it has similar themes. And instead of people not being able to eat, they're stuck in a house together and there's certain sort of breakdown of society and all these other things. But that doesn't necessarily make it in, in that way. So to me, it's it's its own thing. And as a matter of fact, I when I watched Mr. Nobody, I was blown away by it because this is Hollywood-level budget. This is big filmmaking with interpersonal ideas. This is big, high-gloss stuff done about little tiny things, which reminded me of something like Solaris, which I've often said is, you know, here's a big science fiction movie, but it's not really about science. It's not really about fiction. It's not really about space. It's about what's in this person's head and their connection to other people. So it's, it, I, I, that's, that's what I felt about it. Now I can understand that somebody who's seen both, I would say the, the real big difference between the two is that you don't really get the feeling that in Mr. Nobody that Nemo is dealing with all this resentment that you get in Toto. Absolutely. And um, just on that point, it's actually the most expensive Belgian film production ever. I mean, you can really see it in that film. I mean, you can see where they they spent the money. I mean, obviously, Jared Leto at that time probably wasn't commanding huge dollars like he will soon because of that Oscar. But, um, you know, I mean, there's a, there's this cast. It's all over the place. It's here. It's there. It's in another city. It's in space. It's, it's on Mars. It's, you know, there's all this stuff that's in there. So you watch it and you're like, wow, this is this is pretty big uh, erector set they have here. I mean, it was almost like when I was watching it, to be honest, it was like James Cameron level uh, film. I mean, it looked like that to me. It looked like somebody took the time to do digital quality and all of that kind of big blockbuster Hollywood stuff, but really to do it about really tiny things that matter to us. I think one of the reasons why people might consider Mr. Nobody to be a remake of Toto would just be that Van Dormiel has not directed that many films. So we've got... Toto, we've got The Eighth Day, and then we've got Mr. Nobody as far as his feature film work goes. The Eighth Day is definitely a departure in a lot of ways. To me, that's almost a sequel to Toto a little bit more because we have the same actor who is in Toto, Pascal Duquesne, who was a fairly big part in Toto, and then the whole movie of The Eighth Day is based on him. Obviously, it's not a sequel because there are different characters and he's looking for his mom who has passed away and it's a different actress. But the same idea, the magical realism and the way that songs and, and a particular singer interact with him and everything, I can see it lives in that same kind of world. Mr. Nobody coming out when it did. I mean, it's a fascinating story that Mr. Nobody came out in 2009 in France and then didn't hit the States until last year when Magnet picked it up and it played, I think it played a couple theaters here and there and then came out on VOD. And now, like just a few weeks ago, it came out on uh, Blu-ray. 
beautiful Blu-ray package. I just have to throw this out here for folks to know that it's an expanded cut. They have the original cut on there. There's deleted scenes, so there's even more. There's a making of. So great, great DVD package. But it's kind of unfair because there was that four-year gap in between, almost five if you count it, not coming out to DVD until 2014. And in the interim, there have been all these movies that have almost played a little bit in the same sandbox that Mr. Nobody was playing in. So as I'm watching Mr. Nobody, I'm just like, oh, this is like Cloud Atlas. Oh, this is like uh, Ender's Game. Oh, this is like this one. And I'm like, well, holy shit, all this stuff came out after Mr. Nobody, but nobody haha, knows it because... It's out now, you know? It's like, oh, okay. So now Mr. Nobody looks like it's a ripoff of all these other ideas when it was the first one out there. Great. I mean, we have uh, gravity. I mean, there was um, the whole being in space, uh, that narrative. I mean, that's just sort of on everyone's mind now, um, and you have that as well. And Mr. Nobody, even Inception to a certain extent uh, with his dreams and uh there's that sort of angle to it, too. So these are all thematic currents that are really at the forefront of preoccupation, even. And it was supposed to come out about, I think he was working on it for 10 years or so before. I mean, it was a long time in the making, a project a long time in the making. Toto was out in 1991. Eighth Day was 96, so only a, what, five-year gap in there. And then he he directed a, a short for Lumiere and Company. Lumiere. Yep. And then we've got the Eighth Day in 96, and then Mr. Nobody isn't until 2009. So, yeah, there was a long time in between there. And I can see what you were saying, Rob, is that we see every penny up on screen. That's why I think, given the fact that the lead actors now won an Oscar – and this film is that expensive. I mean, people should see this movie because I think it's the most accessible entry because it's easy to get. And also, I think that it it plays in a visual that people can can work with. It's it's something that they can um, that they're used to seeing in that way, at least for an American audience. As for the structure of it, that's going to throw them. Because yeah. that's that's not normal structure. And the thing that I I mean, I really liked it because I, I, I appreciated it because it's very, to me, kind of underground and experimental, but high cost at the same time. So it's kind of interesting. The other thing that it reminded me of, and I had talked about this in my notes. I wasn't on the show, and you can look at it on our website, projection-booth.com, in my rundown of you know my favorite films of last year. And I talked about her, and in terms of the design and her being connected to Chris Ware who's a comic artist. And when I watched Mr. Nobody and I watched Toto, again, I felt like I was reading Chris Ware and specifically building stories because I don't know if you're familiar with, with Chris Ware's yes. work or building stories. Building stories is 14 different pieces that comes in a box and you can kind of read them in any order you want to read them in. It tells this large story of the building and the people who live in it and a bee and all this other stuff. But there's, he's not dictating to you in what order or manner of which you're supposed to look at this thing. So the way that I look at Mr. Nobody, yeah, there are certain things that are, you know, surprises because of the structure. You know, oh, okay, you know, and things like that. But I almost get the feeling that you could restructure this film 14 different ways and walk away going, wow, that was really good. So it's because of that loose structure and informal nature that brings out 
larger connections for me with both films. It's a very, very philosophical film. I mean, there's even uh, points where there are sort of lectures on philosophy or on ideas about string theory or um, chaos and just the, the notion of different worlds, parallel worlds, possible worlds, the really the infinity of the human experience that kind of touches on all of us, that it's really exploring this quest for meaning in, uh, in life and, in, and possibility and imagination in a way that are we just the figments of someone's imagination? What world do, what does existence even mean? It sort of questions the very, very notion of, of our existence and where we are, what plane we exist on, the intersections of different planes, which is through the, the image of the, the light motif of the train tracks, the intersecting and the way the train tracks intersect or separate, diverge. And it, like you said about other films that explore this, these concepts that were recently made, such as Tree of Life or just this, you know, where, where are we in terms of the galaxy, in terms of the cosmos, the infinity and totality of the human experience. And that's I think, and and he himself mentioned that the film is about doubt. I mean, the, the director Jakob van Dormel mentioned that it's it's really all about doubt, and I think that that's really an interesting way to perceive it as well. Is, is it really about that? I mean, we mentioned regret with Toto, and do you see this, Mister Nobody, is about doubt and doubting our place, doubting the course of your life, or our place in the galaxy, our place in the in the world, our place in in time, in space, I mean, these, these major questions that it, that it raises about fundamentally who we are in this search for meaning or quest for meaning or identity. What was there before the Big Bang? Well, you see, there was no before, because before the Big Bang, time did not exist. Time is a result of the expansion of the universe itself. But what will happen when the universe has finished expanding and the movement is reversed? What'll be the nature of time? If string theory is correct, the universe possesses nine spatial dimensions and one temporal dimension. Now, we can imagine that in the beginning, all the dimensions were twisted together. And during the Big Bang, three spatial dimensions, the ones that we know as height, width, and depth, and one temporal dimension, what we know as time, were deployed. The other six remained minuscule, wound up together. Now, if we live in a universe of wound dimensions, how do we distinguish between illusion and reality? Time, as we know it, is a dimension we experience only in one direction. But what if one of the additional dimensions wasn't spatial, but temporal? If you mix the mashed potatoes and the sauce, you can't separate them later. It's forever. The smoke comes out of Daddy's cigarette, but it never goes back in. We cannot go back. That's why it's hard to choose. You have to make the right choice. As long as you don't choose, everything remains possible. I definitely get that, and specifically because we have, there's three girls, you get the feeling that in these different universes or different versions of his life, he married each of them and has sort of similar scenes where it's like, okay, with this person, it would have been this, or this person would have been this, this person would have been that. And we sort of get the feeling of these um, 
different opportunities, these different ideas, doubting if, okay, well, maybe that was the right choice then, but it's not the right choice now, sort of how all of these things kind of stack and play against each other. Right. And can you move from one to another? You know, is he unstuck in this kind of reality? Does he have that ability to go from one to another? Is it the same Nemo that we're seeing in all of these? Because there are times where he seems to cross over from one to another. Like he'll wake up next to the pool and, you know, he's basically like, where am I? So I, I kind of like that whole idea of him being unstuck in time, as it were, and just kind of going through all of these different existences and seeing what his life would have been like had he made a right turn instead of a left turn. I love the idea, too, in the film of the the literal, like, butterfly effect that we're seeing in, in different places. The whole idea of him losing the phone number for the one woman because he bought inexpensive jeans and the way that the, the that they lay out that whole logic step from one to another again that reminded me a lot of uh Caro with the way that you know some of those things would happen in delicatessen where it's like you know this little thing moves to this to this to this and that causes a greater effect so it was very nice to see how that played and then also how that plays into the larger theme of the film itself a butterfly can flap its wings in peking and central park you get rain instead of central the other thing that i was thinking about in reference to all of these films because you said you know in the past several years we've had a lot of I guess what you would call mainstream existentialist film, where where <laughs> that I, sounds like right. a contradiction in terms, I, but I totally agree with you. You know, and there was an article recently that a friend of mine put up on Facebook, and it was talking about specifically millennials. But I think that th- this may be broadly plastered across anyone who's maybe under age fifty. Who knows? Maybe even even more than that. I'm not that old, but uh, nothing against people who are fifty and older. But the thing is, it was talking about how. Millennials are less likely to go to church or less likely to become members of political parties. They're less likely to buy into the company they work for because they're always switching jobs and all this stuff. And I was thinking about how, you know, we would talk about, you know, films in the 80s or films in the 70s or the 60s or whatever and sort of what was going on in the zeitgeist or in our psychology at that time than what was being expressed. And normally you can't see it when it's happening. You usually see it 5, 10, 15 years later when you sit down and you do an analysis and go, yeah, that period we had all this stuff going on and uh, you can kind of see it in the art. And what it got me to think about with this sort of mainstream existentialism is that it appears that at this time in our history – and this is what I wrote on my friend's Facebook page. This time in our history, all the institutions that we've come to rely on have all broken down. Now we look at something like politics. Yeah. We, we've become jaded on politics. We've become jaded on the business culture. We've become jaded on religion. We've become jaded on media. And the fact that things are more diffuse, you know, we have a podcast. Anybody can do this. So you've got a Twitter account. You've got Facebook. Anyone is now their own publisher, in a lot of ways. Before, it used to be the monolith. It was the guy who had the money. Okay, here's your radio program. Here's your TV program. Here's your newspaper. You know, you had to have money, and it was a a smaller cadre of people controlling things in that way. I think now that things are so diffuse, and because we feel possibly that all these institutions that we relied on, our grandparents or our parents relied on, have all kind of crumbled around, we're now looking at ourselves and going, what does it all mean? What does it mean for me? How do I make this world that I, I can't really rely on these institutions 
to make sense to me and put a value in my life. And I think that a film such as Mr. Nobody or Total Hero or, as you were saying, all these other sort of Hollywood versions of what I'll call mainstream existentialism all kind of plays into that in sort of that longing that I think that many of us have. Talking about other kind of mainstream existentialist films, which I, I love that terminology, by the way. I saw some of The Fountain while I was watching this. And another one that I was thinking of, and I thought that this line came from Toto and it was kind of being recycled in Mr. Nobody, but I ended up finding out that it wasn't. The whole line about why am I me and not you, it was Wings of Desire. So while I was watching it, I was just like, oh, what? Why? I know that that line. Where did that come from? And there's that whole, because it is kind of a refrain inside of Wings of Desire, you know, that why am I me and not you is very similar to that why am I me and not somebody else that happens in Mr. Nobody at least once. So it was nice to kind of pick up on that as well. But yeah, I think it plays probably more in that American existentialism kind of idea like Marceline had mentioned the tree of life and uh, another tree movie is the fountain, all this kind of stuff. I think that it being in English also helps it being a lot more accessible to folks. Um, like you said, Rob, the, the timeline is going to throw people, but if folks are familiar with those other films, I think they should be able to hopefully understand what's going on in this one. There's a certain lightness, I think, to Mr. Nobody and Toto. There's kind of a, a lightness that both of them, as they're headed towards their death, it's this moment of sort of joy and laughter. And they both, at the very end of Toto, when the ashes are being scattered, I mean, he's laughing, he's joyful, he's, I'm flying for the first time. You know, he's, it's this moment of happiness and lightness that, and, and also in Mr. Nobody that he, he starts laughing and there's, a happiness or a joyfulness, kind of this joyful light quality, even though they're dealing with these incredibly heavy existentialist themes of philosophical themes about um, the meaning of life or identity, searching for who who you really are, who, who anyone really is, where humanity, all, all these huge questions. But at the same time, there's sort of a lightness and a humor that I think is important in, in both of the films. And it also comes to play a lot with the, uh, the music that's used in both films, the songs, and particularly Boom by Charles Trenet in Toto the Hero and um, uh, Mr. Sandman in Mr. Nobody, how both films sort of end in music and in this kind of light, happy, uh, very class, a uh, very... Um, uh, almost iconic documents of a particular decade or a particular culture. So it, it, it's very, that I think is a very big part of, of both films. And, and also in terms of the, uh, just the, the, the time that it took to release the film and how there's this long pause with Mr. Nobody, it also kind of parallels Jared Leto's career because this was the last film he made before taking a pause in his own career for, and prior to, and then, uh, Right afterwards, he filmed uh, Dallas Buyers Club. So he took, uh, I guess, about a five-year gap between Mr. Nobody and Dallas Buyers Club. So it's kind of this interesting uh, parallel in terms of his own trajectory into another sort of step of stage or level of his career, having won the Oscar and having received so much critical acclaim and recognition for that. So he, too, paused his own, his own career was sort of on pause while this film, just so there's sort of a parallel between those those two timelines in a way. Yeah. Leto is really kind of an underappreciated actor. I don't know if it's the whole idea that he is 
so pretty. And I think that's something that like a Brad Pitt had to face early in his career. And maybe, you know, Leto needs to get over that as well. Or maybe now people will kind of take him a little bit more seriously after his Oscar win. But for a long time, you know, he was in some heavier stuff, but people just didn't necessarily take him seriously. But even if you go back and look at Mr. Nobody and look at the movie that he made right before chapter 27, where he played Mark David Chapman, the physical transformation that he made between the two roles and really the three roles with Dallas Buyers Club in there, just remarkable. I mean, he was this chunky, dumpy looking guy as Mark David Chapman. And then to go from that to Mr. Nobody, where he's playing several different ages in there, and especially when he's, you know, made up and he looks like, uh, you know, Dustin Hoffman from Little Big Man or whatever, he portrays it. He's got a really good use of his physicality when he's the older guy, when he's, you know, ancient, 100 and what, 16 years old or whatever. So it's a really strong performance. And really, I think if people want to, and hopefully they will, they will go back and start looking at some of the other performances that he's given throughout his career and see that he's not just a pretty face, that he actually has the goods behind it. You know, I think what it is might be, um, you're a couple of years older than me, Mike, but the first memory of Jared Leto for me will always be my so-called life. And it will oh, be same here. Mine too. Mine too. Yeah. Jordan Catalano. Yeah. Forever. So, so because of that, we have this image, at least people my age of him as this, you know, teeny bopper kid on this, on this TV show. But the one thing that I, I think is right is that he is willing to play ugly. He is willing to do these things. And I think really where you first see it for him as an actor and he sort of plays against his pretty boy angle is in fight club where he is sort of the underling to Tyler Durden and gets his face pounded in and he's got like this massive scar and everything. And he, I think he's called pretty boy or something in there. I can't even remember what his name, his character name. I is. think it's uh, angel face yeah. right angel there. Face. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the whole thing is, is that he's willing to, to go there and he was willing to go there in 1999 when that movie was made. So that was only a few years after my so-called life. So, I mean, he's, he has been expanding since, then and when you see something like Mr. Nobody it's such a broad performance as you were saying it's it's him young it's him you know middle age it's him playing little big man <laughs> which is a good uh, good analogy for it so there's all of this in there and it's it I for me I think it's better than his role in Dallas Buyers Club he said he was most comfortable the the, the stage that he preferred the most was when he was in all the the makeup as the older man on his deathbed really and he said that he himself that was when he actually felt the most comfortable even though it took hours and hours five hours a day or something to to make him up uh, with layers and layers of makeup and uh, prosthesis and every prosthetics and everything um he said that that was where he was actually the most comfortable and where he uh where he felt the most as an actor just really that was uh, the 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 facet of the, the aspect of Nemo's life or the, the stage of Nemo's life that he preferred playing the most, which was really the furthest stretch or the most uncomfortable or physically um, uncomfortable or difficult kind of performance to, to, to take on. And that was what he, and he has commented on that. And, and so has the director as well, that that was where he, that was really the, the part that he enjoyed playing the most. And, and it, it shows as well in his performance in that role. So I know somebody's going to call us out on it. So I just want to say the following four words, Requiem for a Dream. Yeah. yeah. We don't even have to go into it. We'll talk about that on another show. Yes. 
Okay, we're going to take a break and play an interview with Jacques Van Dormiel after these messages. It was a childhood corrupted by endless hours of VHS rentals. We're sick to manage this. You'd love it. In his most formative years, he had seen it all. I could handle anything. Action. Karate is not to be used aggressively. But if I have no other choice. Horror. And romance. Now, he's decided it's time to go back. For just one more adventure. Humans are such easy prey. Noel Miller presents... You're the problem, you little shit. The Adventures in VHS Podcast. Join me, Noel Mellor, as each month I take an in-depth look at one movie from my collection of ex-rental 80s VHS classics and speak to one or two of the people involved with making them about what the format means to them. The Adventures in VHS Podcast. Thank you. Have a nice day. Download today from iTunes by searching for Adventures in VHS or visit adventuresinvhs.com. You love midnight movies, don't you? <laughs> but can you handle midnight movies 24 hours a day? Your death will be indescribable. Find out on Black Flag TV. <coughs> the first viral television on the web. Black Flag TV is entirely dedicated to haunting horror, science fiction, and cult movies. Broadcasting live, 24 hours a day, obscure independent movies and classic horror. Make Black Flag TV your sanctuary for the horror genre. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Visit us now, blackflag.tv. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, proudly resents. And you listen to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know. It's messed up, right? Can you tell me, how did you get involved in filmmaking? What is your background? I think I didn't really think to other things. So I started a film school very early when I was 17. But I wanted more to be a camera cameraman and making documentaries about uh, wild animals or something. And at the same time, I'm, I was working in a theater for children and in a circus as a clown. And at, at the moment, I preferred working with, with actors and, uh, that, than, that, than with uh, animals. So I slowly entered into the process of, of uh, writing and directing. And I made another film school in, in Brussels uh, to, to, to be a director. In fact, I, I I never I never did anything. I, I never had a real job, <laughs> you know. But, uh, I, uh, probably probably people who make films are people who don't know what they will what what they will do when they will be grown up. You know. What were some of your uh, documentary shorts about? I, I made shorts documentary shorts about uh, Special Olympics. Um, that was. Uh, Olympics for mental handicapped people, and there I met some fantastic people, fantastic guys, and after that I wanted to make sort of fiction with them because they were incredible actors, and then I made uh, a few short films with them, and that's the reason why the, the eighth, why I did the Ace Day after Totozi Hero. It's because I I knew so much incredible actors, so said 
mental handicap, but with uh, with an incredible intelligence of of feelings. It started with documentary and then it became fiction. Where did you meet Pascal Duquesne? I, I met Pascal in a in a theater group uh, where where the other actors were, with whom I I made short films were also working, and so he was uh, he was pretty he was eighteen I think something like that very young when I met him and he, he was fantastic on stage and he was also a fantastic actor and so I uh, he was in, in until now he's in all my films he was. He was in Toto, he was in the eighth day, and he has a part in Mr. Nobody. And um, and he will be in the next one also, because every time I walk with him, at the end he asks, okay, what's the next movie? <laughs> and then I have to, to write something for him. I was very curious about uh, Pericoloso Sporgesi. Uh, first off, I was curious why the Italian name. In Belgium, uh, when you when you took a train, in sort of international train, it was written... Ne pas se pencher au dehors, nicht hinauslehnen, et pericolosus borgersi. It's dangerous to, to uh, but, but it was not in English, in, in English, in fact, it was only in, in other European languages. In a train, it, when I was a child, it was written on the, on, under, uh, under the windows of the trains. It means do not put your body out of the train, you know. Don't lean your head out kind of thing? Yeah, the, yeah. I love that short, and it really kind of feels almost like a, almost like a little bit of a Rosetta Stone for some of your films, because it's so much of it I see again in Toto, and so much I see again in Mr. Nobody. How did you go from that to Toto the Hero years later? I think I used some parts in Toto the Hero, but Toto the Hero was a very different writing. I used more Epericlosus Porgasi for Mr. Nobody. It was really the the start of the of the script, uh, this this impossible choice with two possible lives, and uh, after after working more and more on it, I, I realized it was would be more interesting to make instead of two 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 different uh, futures to make uh, feel that there is an infinity of possibilities and not just two possibilities because after a choice there is another choice then another chance. And then another accident, but it's constructed like like a tree, you know. Mister Nobody is more constructed like a tree. Uh, uh, Toto the Hero was uh, more about um, the holes in the life, you know, the holes, the difference, the contrast between the what the kid ima- thought he will be and the adult he becomes, and the difference between what's the, the, of, of the difference, the, the, to have an adult that doesn't have anything to do with the kid, and an old man that doesn't have anything to do with the adult he was, you know, and to make them these three ages as different as possible with big holes in in it, yeah, just to tell, uh, probably uh, we will not be what we think uh, we will be, and probably also we are perhaps not what we think we are. I love that you do not shy away from showing the beginnings, middles, and ends all at the same time. I had a great influence for, from two films, in fact. Um, one film was Rachel Rachel by Paul Newman that I, uh, I saw when I was 14, something like that. It was, and it was really a shock for me because it, it opened my mind to the fact that make, that a film is not filming the reality, but it can be uh, filming the, the thoughts. And how how people think, how a character is thinking, 
and jumping uh, in, 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 in different times, you know. And the other film that helped me a lot was uh, Amar Court by Fellini, that has also uh, very different stories, but the construction is like... Um, Every, every little story is has a very classical structure, one, two, three, and three acts, but all are mixed together, so it's uh, it, it it can be some a sort of simplification of the complexity or the opposite. I don't know, but these were the two films that that helped me the most uh, in um, because I, what I, I think what I when I started to write Toto, I first wrote the the a story, a story with two children. Uh, to uh, a boy and his sister, and after that, I I, I start work, working on another story with an adult, and after that, with to on another story with the old man, and at the moment I realized, okay, with these three periods of time, uh, it's much more interesting. I also liked your your nods that you had to Vertigo in Toto as well. Yeah, indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that comes from Boileau and Arsujac. The, the, the two writers who wrote the book of uh, Vertigo, uh, the, the novel, I mean, wrote a very interesting book about uh, called Le Roman Policier, the detective story, uh, and uh, very technical about detective stories and how how there is a need for uh, some, a, a character that is not into the into the story that is not focused into the story, but he, that manipulates. The elements, and so that the main character, how much he's thinking, how much he has a feeling, he becomes crazy, and it's not possible to. Uh, and w- what's happening is not possible. How did you kind of make that transition from short films to a feature? It was a long, a long writing. I think I made something like nine or ten shots before making a long feature, and it was really something I liked because it was. Uh, Every year I made uh, I made a short. You know, every year something different. Every year something new. Musicals, uh, comedies, uh, experimental uh, documentaries. But at uh, at a while, at that moment, uh, shorts were shown only on a few festivals and then uh, on TV at midnight in the middle of the summer. And I had the feeling that if I want, it, 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 it's as fun as uh, writing songs, for example, but in, in a sort of world where nobody is listening to songs, but everybody is listening to symphonies. And so I had to relearn how to compose something, how to compose a, conf- a symphony, uh, even if I, I was re- really trained for short films. And I think if... It, if short films would have been a sort of media that would, would have been um, something uh, uh, viewed uh, with, 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 with the public, probably I, I would have continued to make short films. Long feature films are it, it's it's a sort of it's a very different construction because I think in a short film you have the feeling if I have the feeling by having everything in front by being able to embrace the whole story in one in one view. And for a long feature film, it's like like um, I cannot I can never see the whole story at the same time. I have to work sections by sections, and putting all these sections in relation. So it's it's um, I think Toto the Hero took me. I start I started writing when I was something like uh, twenty two, twenty three, and I 
I shoot it when I was uh, 30. It took a while to to find um, the writing. Uh, the eighth day took me, it was much shorter, it was something like three years uh, for the writing. Mr. Nobody took me six years to write. So it's, um, so, so, yeah, the most part of my life I'm I'm sitting and writing, you know. It's not the most adventurous part, but it's very adventurous in the in the in the head. I, I, can, I had a very good uh, teacher who who was teaching also in in the states. His name is uh, Frank Daniel. He came from Prague, and then he 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 made a film school in in New York and and in LA. And he said, "You can't see the the." Um, the, the quality of a scriptwriter, but just by looking at its at his pants, because if he's sitting a lot, he's a good scriptwriter. You know. Tell me, what is the the culture of film like in Belgium? It's very diverse. You know, we have a, we have already three national languages, a mixing of cultures. I think the yeah the specific of of Belgian cinema is is to have no specificity. You know, it's to be something to to be able to make films that doesn't have anything to do with another filmmaker, and it's very, very. It goes in a lot of different directions. You know, there is no there is no main street. No. It's only only little tiny streets, and uh, it, it's perhaps also because we don't really have an industry. You know, nobody's asking us anything. It's not like in France where you there is a need to have films for to to put on to put on Canal Plus, to put on, on the screens, because there are a lot of screens, a lot of demand on uh, of the TVs. And here in Belgium, we just do things with uh, that nobody's waiting for, but we do it. Yeah. Oh, there are the, the Dardenne brothers who are Belgians. The, there are a lot of Flemish also, um, Flemish films. And for the moment, there are a lot of very interesting Flemish films of a very young generation that are um, that are coming. How did you get involved with the uh, Lumiere and Company documentary? They they asked me for, and and it was it was really very exciting to to yeah to come to come back to the very beginning of a of a, a film where you have to to um, uh, to handle this wooden box and uh, and uh, and counting the rhythm and uh, having just uh, I think uh, twenty uh, twenty five or thirty seconds. It was really exciting, a little magical to 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 see how where it comes from, you know, with how simple it was. How did you decide to do Mister Nobody and to make this kind of your first English language film? Probably because uh, I'm not really attached to a language. Uh, for me, when a film is in English, it's in, in fact certainly not for English-speaking people. But for me, it's less concrete when it's in English than when it's in French. Because it's more uh, the language of the cinema, and and when I was writing those scenes on, on Mars, it was really strange to have it in French. <laughs> so uh, at at a moment, I had the I had, I had the feeling that also the, the distance between the two to to have to have one life in North America, life in England, was more interesting to have it in English uh, because it was more more uh, a huge world, you know. Than, than to have it in between, by example, France and Belgium or something like that. To have a notion between uh, between the life with the mother and life with the father, you know, and not being able to to see 
to see to see the other or during the weekend or something like that. You're fluent in English, but did shooting in English kind of give you any problems or present any challenges for you? I'm not conscious of it, <laughs> perhaps, <laughs> perhaps. But I'm 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 a very bad judge. Uh, I yeah, I'm listening to the music, to the voice. I know that the accents are not very clear for me. And I do, sometimes I don't I doesn't really recognize what is more Canadian or or the difference between American and Canadian. You know, it's it's very subtle for me. It's more a visual film than a film based on dialogue. The dialogue is a sort of music that is with the images. And I had fantastic actors also, you know, the, the directing Sarah Polly or, or Jared Leto. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, um, it's really easy. He is just such an amazing actor and so diverse. Uh, what is it like to work with him? He's very focused, very concentrated, very ready. He wakes up early. He's ready when he arrives on, he arrives on the set being already the character. He doesn't leave the character. He doesn't go in and out. Uh, he stays into the character the whole day, and he doesn't do anything else than working. How has filmmaking changed for you? I mean, even just comparing Toto in 91 to Mr. Nobody in 2009, the level of special effects is so different between the two. How has this way that filmmaking has changed kind of affected you when it comes to what you're thinking about doing or, or how you work on set? It's very different by the yeah, b- because of the digital, you know, uh, on 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 Total the Hero and even on the Ace Day, everything that was um, sort of special effect or unreal had to be uh, already to be done on set uh, with projections behind the screen, behind the actors, or things like that. Uh, for Mister Nobody, it was much more composed um, afterwards uh, in Canada. Uh, which was the special effects, and uh, with Louis Morin, who was really great. Um, and for the next films, what I really want to explore is how to make it, how to make it as light as possible. You know, how to use uh, the new technology to make it lighter and easier, and to to, in fact, to uh, trying to learn what. What the very young filmmakers already know, but how to make um, to to make a film more like the Beatles make a, a band in the garage with with a few guitars instead of having a, an orchestra, a symphonic orchestra. You know how to make a film without twenty tracks, but just um, two cars, something like that. How to make a film with with uh, fifteen people instead of a hundred, and. That I think would be something really fun to to find a way of. Um, my dream would be to make a film like like like, like a musician plays piano every day, you know, uh, and to make it um, just uh, cheap, essential, and with a, with a small with a small crew of friends. Maybe not going back to basics as far as Lumiere, but a little bit. Yeah, a little more advanced than that. <laughs> Indeed, to, trying to yet yeah, trying to use natural light, trying to use natural sets with with these cameras that are incredible now, very sensitive, uh, uh, very cheap, um, and the, and where the essential is not all the technology and the lab, and the labs and so on. The essential is a good story with good actors and uh, and 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 a, and, and a good crew, you know. And uh, having the also having the fun to do it. I think one of the things I love the most about your films is this kind of 
embrace of the the magical and just having um as you were talking about before the mix of the the reality and the fantasy like the the Luis Mariano character when he shows up in eighth day it makes me so happy whenever we enter into that world yeah often the music is um is a sort of uh uh yes sort of naive happiness uh of the childhood you know and and I think happiness is something naive so not uh also with the 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 um uh, mr mr sandman of mr nobody is the same kind of music that makes yeah it's sort of music i i i hear in the beginning of the day to me to me to 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 make me feel good what is it like uh working with your brother on the musical scores he he really always wanted to make that the story tells something else that is not in the film and that the music is more close to to the character. And since he's really a sort of mathematic guy, for example, in Toto the Hero, there is one team for for uh, the main character, uh, for Thomas, and there's uh, one team, theme, theme, not team, one theme for for uh, Evelyn. And when, when both come together, the two themes are adding, and it makes a sort of third theme that is just the addition of the two first themes. And so it, it, he, he, it was really composed very carefully. And for the last one, for Mr. Nobody, I asked him to make something, because the story was really very complex, to make a music that is most, as simple as possible, just with one or two guitars or one piano. And to make something that is in sort of contrapoint of that is uh, in a way simplifying uh, one one of the the levels of uh, of the feeling of the film. I don't know if it's good or bad, but I almost like that Mr. Nobody kind of had two lives: the idea that it was released in 2009 and then released again in the U.S. in 2013, because I was very fortunate to see it in 2009, and then to have it come back again was like a it was almost kind of pleasant, like, oh, yes, th- there's this film, and it's so good, and I'm glad now more people are able to to see it. I'm glad to. I'm glad to. Yeah, yeah. It's a very strange process. You know, it's like dropping a, a message in a bottle in the sea, and suddenly after four years, it, it appears somewhere on a shore, and you have a message, oh, we can see the film here. It's, you know, it's really it's, it's, it's strange. It's really strange that it takes such a long time. But uh, but it's 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 interesting too because uh, it means sometimes it's there are ways there are different ways for a film to travel. Yeah, what was the story with that? Why was it such a a strange journey between the the two releases? There was a big enthusiasm at the beginning, even at the first screenings, and then the the film was a total flop in France. It didn't do anything, and after that, every every you know when. Uh, when everybody believes in it, everybody wants it. And at a moment where where uh, um, the film is a flop in the first country where it's shown, uh, all the other countries are making. Uh, the Germans put it during the, put, in, put it during the the football uh, period, and um, nobody it, it yeah and on a few screens. Uh, Italy wasn't even didn't even show the film, and uh, and so there was no distributor for the states. You know, it was it, it goes very quickly. When there is one flop in the first country, the whole thing goes very quickly. I can't imagine this film being a flop anywhere. 
It was. <laughs> I can guarantee you, it was really a flop, and it it, it goes very quickly. It's um, it's the first here in in France where it goes out. It goes out on the Wednesday, and the whole the whole everything is done is calculated on the first day on the first screening. So they they called me at eleven and a half in the morning after the f- first uh, screening uh, of the Wednesday and said, "Okay, the film is dead." No, it won't. It will not make two weeks. I, I thought that things were just bad in the U.S. with this whole short release schedule. I didn't realize that it had affected, you know, that it was worldwide. Yeah, it's worldwide. We can copy everything. Uh, everything what's in the States exists, I think, some in other in other film industries the same way. I think it's just like, yeah, it's just like a fish that is, uh, okay, they, they won't like it, so we put another fish. When I look at the credits on the internet for the film, it seems that there are a lot of deleted scenes. Is that true? There are four deleted scenes, yeah, scenes, yeah. but uh, it's, it's not a lot compared to, to, to another film. That There are four deleted scenes, but they're interesting. So that's why, that's why I put them on the DVD, because they were the, the, the feather painting, painting the sky, and the, the clouds were moving too fast. Uh, Nemo imagining his wife uh, having committed suicide. It was not really necessary to the story, but uh, but the scenes were good, so I put them just on, uh, as bonus on the DVD. Do you know when the when the DVD comes out in the states? Is, are, are, will it have all the? Yeah, indeed, it's very very well very well made. I, I saw the the I saw the object the and the, the artwork is great and the program, what they put on the on the DVD is great too. That came out in 2009. What have you been doing since then? I've made, um, uh, directly after that, a sort of mixing between cinema, dance, and theater. It's a, it's a, it's a sort of ephemeral film that is made directly on stage where nothing is, nothing is recorded before. It's a, it's a, it's a long feature film, um, but where everything is... Uh, it's it, it's with with my with my wife um, we we made it in a we, in fact we had ten, it's called kiss and cry we played it in pittsburgh and in boston um last fall and uh it's um uh, yeah it's a, it's 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 a film making in a sort of Melies way everything all the special effects are done in on tiny little sets you know um the characters are hands so the, the deserts are made by a sand with a ventilator. The sun is made by by a, a flash lamp. Um, so it's a sort of of films. Uh, it's it's a film, in fact, where you have uh, in the theater you have the screen and you see the result. That is one hour twenty minutes. But you have the making of because everything is made in front of the audience with two cameras, tracks, uh, tiny cameras, tiny GoPros. Um, so it was really fun to do because it was a very different process. It was, um, um, it's much more collective, much more improvisation for, I think we improvised for one month and we tried to fix the story for one other month. And, and the, the total process between beginning of rehearsing and playing was something like four months. That is something that never exists in, in filmmaking for me. It's, at least four years or eight, perhaps, and here I had this sort of ephemeral film in, 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 in four months, and we played it something like 200 times, and it was really, it's really fun to do. And you said it played in Pittsburgh, and, it, and it, I know you said... In Boston also, yeah. 
and in Europe and South South uh, America, Central America, and uh, we'll go to Korea next next month and in Australia. So we play it in six different languages. It's the cheapest film I've ever made. <laughs> <laughs> and in this economy, that helps, right? Yeah, indeed, indeed. It's fast. You don't have to wait. You don't have to have a TV or an international seller. It's just you, you can. When we started working after one after one month of rehearsing, our our set budget was something like hundred dollars. You know, so it was uh, it was okay. I was always curious. When Tomas takes that bullet um, at the end, I always wondered if if maybe he should have been identified as his neighbor instead of as him, just so that his it would almost have been like his his neighbor had taken his place, or they had finally switched lives. Indeed, yeah, indeed. That 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 he 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 has the feeling that he failed his life, but he will succeed in his death, you know, by being the other one or by becoming by taking back his own life. Just at the moment when where it's finished for the last act, I, I always felt kind of bad when I saw his personal effects having his name on it rather than his his neighbor's name. Though. Yes, you <laughs> feel the second time. Yeah, <laughs> that's one of the things that I like about your films is that they're they're so bittersweet. Indeed, indeed. Sometimes more bitter than sweet. Yeah. When we were talking, I was talking about the whole idea of the magical part to things. I was so glad that there's magic in the eighth day, but that you keep the characters grounded in reality is too. There's, there's too many films and this is more opinion than question. There's too many films for me where when you have a, a character who, um, is you know special in some way that they almost become a magical creature you know like uh having like rain man where you know he has to have like super abilities so they can go to to las vegas and win at cards i was glad that your main character wasn't this kind of magical being you know like even though he walks on water at one point i'm glad that he what he wasn't jesus yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. he didn't pretend yeah how is it working with uh, Daniel uh, Atuel? He's he's a great guy. At the beginning of the eighth day, he was he was very generously trying to put Pascal a little bit more in front than himself. Huh? Uh, but after one day or two, he realized he had to run to be because Pascal really took the took the scene. Uh, he takes the scenes for himself, and uh, and after a while, he. Daniel realized he he didn't have to help Pascal for anything. He he just had to help himself to 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 be at the same level. It's um, what's a little bit unfair when when you work with uh, mental handicapped people or with very young actors is that sometimes it's magical and sometimes it's nothing. And and so the the, the good the, the good take is the magical one. And for the other actor who is good from the beginning, if if we do ten takes and Pascal is fantastic in two takes and doesn't really is not really interested in the other, these two these are the two takes that are are chosen. And so Daniel has to be good every time for the ten takes because he doesn't know where what, what take will be. He, he knows it will not be. For his work, but for for Pascal's work, that the take that the the, that the choice will be on on that take. 
this is a dumb question. We we call folks that have uh, what uh, Pascal has Down syndrome yep. in the United States. What is it in France? What's the terminology? Or in Belgium, I should say. Uh, the the polite terminology is Down syndrome. So it's the English. Uh, but Down, the, the doctor Down invented uh, the mongoloid. And so uh, until, I think, until 20 years ago, the, the common way of, of uh, was uh, was mongoloid. What doesn't have anything to do with, with the real Mongols in China, of course, or in, in Russia. But it's, uh, it's uh, the... the, the, the Dr. Down invented the word mongoloid, in fact. And after that, it was the Down syndrome. I love the scenes of Mongolia that you do. Yeah. I think it's very strange when to have uh, the name of a country where you have never been, you know, and where you don't come from, in fact. Just, uh, it's, it's very strange. Do, 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 do. All right, we are back, and we're talking about Toto the Hero, Mr. Nobody, and all things Belgian this week. Fortunately for everyone, we're joined this week by Marceline Block, who knows a thing or two about world cinema, including what our friends in Belgium are doing. Marceline, tell us a little bit more about you. Not only have you been involved in the World Cinema series of books, but you've written quite a bit, including one that sounds fascinating to me, uh, called Situating the Feminist Gaze and Spectatorship in the Post-War Cinema. That was actually my first book. I uh, I edited that book. It came out a few years ago. It's a it's a, an anthology of essays, and it really treats questions about gender, the gaze. Um, it, a lot of the essays take their point of departure. Laura Mulvey's um, classic. Uh, consideration that came out in the 70s, visual pleasure and narrative cinema, her essay, of course, and it's it, it really treats a very diverse group of films. I'm so glad to hear of your interest in it, and it definitely, we have essays on Jurassic Park, on Eyes Wide Shut, on Quentin Tarantino, Death Proof. We have essays on the film titles by female directors. Um, there's really a very diverse range. There's there's uh, an essay on Russian films, on, uh, there's just a lot of, uh, it, it's a very very strong collection. There's um, essays on um, Marguerite de Ross and Agnes Varda. It really is a pretty wide-ranging collection that would be of interest to those interested in European film, American film. Um, it, we have an, an essay on Hitchcock, actually, which is really quite interesting. It's um, it's looking at Hitchcock from the perspective of a, a queer scholar who's engaging with Hitchcock's, his icy blondes, the, the icy blonde, um, his iconic icy blonde uh, female characters so there's i mean there's really a lot in the collection so and if, if you're interested in it i'd love to discuss it further with you or on the podcast or at any time really well yeah i'm sure we can find a movie that kind of fits in with that the whole idea of the male gaze in cinema definitely mm-hmm. is applicable to so many things i mean we've talked directly about 
Peeping Tom on the show. We had Laura Mulvey on to talk about that. We've talked a little bit about the way that women were portrayed in Hitchcock when we did our Shadow of a Doubt episode. But, you know, you just named off a whole bunch of things that, you know, we've talked about Eyes Wide Shut, but we haven't done a Jurassic Park episode. But, and I know there are so many more things that we could definitely talk about. So yeah, we'll have to have you back to, to discuss that sometime because, yeah, the whole idea of the male gaze and the, the perception and the, um, the, the way that women are kind of controlled on film that way is definitely something of interest for me. But I want to know more about this whole World Cinema series. What is that about and, and what's your role in that? The Directory of World Cinema is really a far, very far-reaching, really groundbreaking series that deals, that treats cinemas, I mean, all over the world. There's volumes on Asian cinema. For example, there's three volumes on the cinema of Japan. There's um, Latin America, all European cinema, of course, France, Italy, Belgium, um, Great Britain. Uh, there's American Hollywood. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, American Independent. There's... Um, just it, it's just this very exhaustive treatment of cinema. It's scholarly. It's a very scholarly series, and each review is um, e- each article is peer reviewed, so it's very scholarly and very uh, high quality. And each uh, it really treats each country in a unique way. It, it has reviews, thematic essays, interviews. A lot of the volumes have uh, discussions about film festivals in the country or sort of cultural, different cultural aspects. I mean, in uh, there's a lot of a lot of the volumes treat sort of the representation. They have what they call, what is called on location, which treats the representation of the country, the, the physical landscape and how that's represented in. Um, in film, we in in our volume on Belgium, we we discussed the city of Bruges in this manner, and we also discussed Belgium as kind of a non non space, almost a very neutral kind of non space in a lot of films. So there's certain links that tie the volumes together, certain thematic. There's quizzes, test your knowledge quiz. We have a quiz at the end of our volume that. So it's really a resource. It's really a learning resource. It's a scholarly resource. It's it's um it's for the classroom. It's for film aficionados, for anyone really interested in in the study of of cinema, of a particular, I mean, a national cinema. You know, Mike, I really have to be um, apologetic here. And the reason Mm -hmm. being is that, and and I'm sure you know this, uh, Detroit is a French city. Okay, it was founded by the French. But... Exactly. But did you know that Detroit had a huge Belgian population? I did because of the Caju Cafe. Correct. That's right. You're good. Kaju Cafe. I have been feather bowling, Rob. Yeah, we have feather bowling. And there used to be, up until a few years ago, there was a newspaper that came out for the Belgian community. It was, um, I think, one of the biggest ones in America, if not the only one, because I don't think it's that big of a diaspora in America. And it just shut down a few years ago. So to me, I kind of feel bad growing up in Detroit and not having a uh, stronger connection to the Belgian community in some way, and therefore Belgian cinema. Because as I said up at the top, to me, Belgian cinema sort of begins and ends with Man Bites Dog in a Town Called Panic. <laughs> I, don't, I just feel so sort of cheated that I haven't had the opportunity to, to really expand beyond that. It's never too late to begin. I mean, you know, it's it's what the, the films you've mentioned are absolutely iconic, wonderful films, and it's it's a great way to start. I mean, there's so much to Belgian cinema. It's an incredibly rich, it's an incredibly rich uh, cinematic 
culture, there's the Darden brothers, of course. I mean, I'm, the Darden brothers, the uh, their their films are just absolutely very highly recognized throughout the world. And there's uh, Andre Delvaux's cinema. There's, I mean, Chantal Ackerman. There's uh, very, I mean, Bullhead was was an Oscar nominated film. There's uh, there's there's really a lot in terms of both on the Flemish side and and the French side. There's a, a real wealth of, I mean, it's, it is a very small country. It doesn't have a sort of studio system. Uh, actually in our research, what we, what we discuss in the book is, uh, that it really per capita has the highest number of filmmakers. So it's, it is this very, um, it's just cinematically has this, uh, and because it was, it didn't have the studio system so much. People were sort of used to directors are sort of used to just financing their own projects, financing their own films, working on very low budgets, um, which is interesting in terms of the discussion with the big budget of Mr. Nobody, because in many ways that's, I mean, it is historic in the sense that it is the, the largest budget, the largest, the most expensive Belgian uh, film really ever made. So that's, uh, very, I mean, that that's really, it is important to underscore, and I, I'm glad that it came up in, in our discussion, too, because a lot of Belgian uh, film productions have been sort of more independent, smaller smaller budgets, less, more sort of geared towards the, the film festival, the kind of esoteric audience, film audience, and uh, not so much these big, big budget, huge uh, effects or the and even that comes up with the animation because I know you mentioned a town called Panic and um, the same team that was behind the town called Panic uh, had uh, recently an Oscar nomination for their film um, Ernest and Celestine. So their animation is a very strong tradition as well in in Belgian cinema. Yeah, and I mean, when we talk about Belgian comics or um, cartoonists, sure. of course, that's where the Smurfs come from, yeah. the Tintin, all that stuff. So, I mean, there is a, a proud tradition of um, of graphic, you know, drawing and things like that in, in the country in terms of its export. And people probably know, you know, if there's anyone who's listening to this and doesn't know the Smurfs, I mean, uh, we've been living in a cave. But one of the things I wanted to ask you when it comes to Belgian cinema is, um, does Belgium claim Jean-Claude Van Damme or no? Oh, we, you know, interestingly, we actually have an article on Jean-Claude Van Damme in our book, I, um, which is very, uh, it, it's interesting because he has sort of made his name internationally and in, in, in these, um, Kung Fu and sort of action films or, and so we actually do have an essay on him and I was discussing this with uh, my co-editor and it was, it's actually pretty groundbreaking to, to have an essay on Jean-Claude Vidal in a serious kind of scholarly tome. We have this whole essay, but because really when you think of Belgium, I mean, at least internationally, I know uh, earlier on we were discussing as Americans or as non sort of coming to Belgium from the American or from the international audience people also almost immediately will say, oh, the muscles from Brussels, Jean-Claude Van Damme, JCVD. So we do have an article about him. And this was, and our book came out before his epic uh, split video that has just ranked up millions and millions of views on YouTube. So this came out before our book, really, when we went to press, I mean, our, our book is actually officially released in April, but when we went to, we went to press, you know, quite a, quite a time before that. So this was before, so that has almost rendered him even more of a 
kind of giant in the popular culture realm. And so we're proud to say we have an article on him and his, you know, as actor and his, his career. And um, certainly he is very strongly identified with, with Belgian culture. Like I said, I think it's one of those things that, at least for me, has kind of fallen through the cracks because, you know, it, much like when we were talking about um, Who Could Kill a Child on that episode about Spanish horror film, I'm like, you know, Spanish film, Del Motivar, it's Buñuel, a few other folks, and that's all I know. I don't really know the genre stuff. So it, it was interesting to learn that on that episode. It's interesting to hear more about Belgian film here on this episode. And, and, and really what I'm hoping is, is that now, as we said at the beginning, that you have an Oscar winner and you have this amazing film, Mr. Nobody, that people will go out and check that out. And hopefully that will lead them to backtrack through more of Van Dormiel's uh, other work. You know, a great place to start is, is our volume on, on Belgian cinema, which is being published in April. Uh, it's it's coming out mid-April in uh, in the U.S. So, I mean, it might be a, I mean, it might be of interest to if, if you're looking to to learn more about Belgian Belgian film. And we have interviews, we have profiles of directors, including Van Dormel. And like I said, he gave us uh, the picture for the cover, which is Toto and. It's very iconic in terms of uh, in, in terms of Belgian cinema, and people sort of instantly recognize it. And we also, the cover of the book actually has the colors of the Belgian flag, the the black, red, and yellow that really um, we wanted to sort of uh, that was a conscious decision and a conscious effort on our part to have it reflect the color, the national colors, and uh, such an iconic film as as Toto. And I was so overjoyed to to receive your invitation to discuss Toto and, and Belgian film and it just I, I hope to have been able to have uh, shed a little light on it or opened up a little discussion on it. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Amanda! Take Jack! Come on! I'll cover you! Come on! Listen close. We got about 30 seconds for those undead motherfuckers. Jesus Christ. You shot me. Oh, you're shooting at us. Everybody run. Look, man, we're not looking to start some sort of zombie holocaust. I just want to get back to my girl. She was the one, the girl that you wait your entire life for. Do you love her? Yeah. We're gonna go find that sweet girl of yours. I'm dead. No, no, we have a second chance here. So, what brings you guys out to these parts? The adventure of life, my friend. We're just trying to get home. Do me a favor. When you find this girl, tell her how you feel. I'm, I'm going to. So what's new with you, huh? Me? Oh, nah. Detachable arm. <laughs> Look, I found this. It's my reunion. Ellie will be there. Hey, Mike. It's been a long time. I mean, you look not good. I'm a zombie. <laughs> what about you? Did you run into any old boyfriends? No, he's definitely not here. Let's go. Oh shit, here comes Shaft the Zombie Killer! Alright! Finally some action! What's up, a truck? What's up, wait, okay. One second, man! Go ahead, go ahead. All I know is that my best friend can't give up now. After everything we did to get here. I've been dead for three years. What are we supposed to do? Visit old friends, reconnect with the family? Ah! You got a girl who loves you. You know how rare that is? He who dares wins. Did it! 
large popcorn. Ooh, one of these. Are you sick or something? Unprotected sex. That's right, we'll be back next week with a discussion of the zombie romance film Deadheads. And we'll be speaking to the directing duo with the brothers Pierce, who are Detroiters, and we'll be joined by Jamie Russell, the author of Book of the Dead, a complete history of the zombie film. But before we go, we want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Marceline Block, and want to thank you for coming on the show, and also wanted to know where can people go to keep up with uh, everything you have going on. Well, you can find me um, on Twitter. It's just my name, Marceline Block. I'm also, I have a, an Amazon author page. I have a blog. Um, I'm on Facebook, Instagram. Just, you know, you can just look me up and certainly find me on social media. You're kind of like the maven of social media. Me? You think so? Really? Well, just you're like, I'm on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. I don't even have an, an Instagram. I don't know what I would do with one. So I don't take pictures of my own food that much. Oh, and I'm also on LinkedIn. I forgot to mention LinkedIn. Do you have a Pinterest? You know, I do have a Pinterest, but I don't really use it anymore. I actually kind of stopped using Pinterest for a pretty long time now, but I still get emails saying that people have repinned my pins, and I haven't used it probably for several several years. And apparently, people are still repinning my pins and things like that, or following my boards. But I really haven't used it in, in the longest. So I think the only one you haven't mentioned was Tumblr. But we do have our own app, so make sure you get that for your uh, your smartphone. For, for your smartphone, for your Kindle Fire, it's all out there. Thank you again, Marceline, for coming on to the show. We will have links over to all of your social media type places, your blog, your Amazon, all that kind of stuff over at our website, projection-booth.com. I want to also thank Jaco Van Dormial for speaking to us, and thank you, everyone, for listening. La pendule fait tic-tac, tic-tic. Les oiseaux du lac pic-pac, pic-pic. Glou-glou-glou font tous les dindons. Et la jolie cloche ding-ding-dong. Mais boum, quand notre cœur fait boum. Tout avec lui dit boum. Et c'est l'amour qui s'éveille. Boum, il chante Loving Bloom. Au rythme de ce boum qui redit boum à l'oreille. A changé depuis hier et la rue a des yeux qui regardent aux fenêtres. Il y a du lilas et il y a des mains tendues sur la mer, le soleil va paraître. Boum, l'astre du jour fait boum. Tout avec lui dit boum quand notre cœur fait boum boum. Le vent dans les bois fait ouh, la bichose à bois fait la vaisselle cassée fait fric, fric, frac Et les pieds mouillés font flic, flic, flac Mais boum, quand notre cœur fait boum Tout avec lui dit boum L'oiseau dit boum, c'est l'orage Boum, l'éclair qui lui fait boum Et le bon Dieu dit boum Dans son fauteuil de nuage Car mon amour est plus vif que l'éclair Plus léger qu'un oiseau qu'une abeille Et s'il fait boum, s'il se met en colère, il entraîne avec lui des merveilles. Boum, le monde entier fait boum, tout avec lui dit boum, quand notre cœur fait boum boum.
chien fait boum, tout avec lui dit boum, quand notre cœur fait boum boum. 